Okay, I'd like to read an excerpt uh, from the book here in regard to proportionality as well and how it applies to police, actually. Rothbard says, quote, that means that police in a libertarian society must take their chances like anyone else. If they commit an act of invasion against someone, that someone had better turn out to deserve it. Otherwise, they are criminals, unquote. So, again, back to this individualistic perspective where there's not a separate class or category of people as we have in kind of modern society where police can do certain things that others can't. The police are subject to the same libertarian principles and philosophy as everyone else um, in the in this world Rothbard is describing, um, which is to say they have more skin in the game, right? If they shoot someone that's innocent, then the I guess the heirs of that innocent victim would then have recourse to the police. So again, it, it maybe seem. It's so radically different than what we have. I think a lot of people is just kind of, it's outside their Overton window a bit, but this is, it has much deeper historical roots than what we're accustomed to today. Yeah. But again, it seems to be the, the obvious and reasonable conclusion, right? Like if, you know, if there's this crazy guy running around in a uniform uh, and, and just, you know, butchering people because he thinks they're, they're somehow criminal, uh, well, well, obviously that that person is is not in his right, and and he's aggressing against other sovereign individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that ought to be punished. Obviously, it doesn't matter if you wear a uniform or not. Uh, and as you say, it it really changes the incentive of and the scheme of the, uh, skin in the game uh, structure. You know, if if you know that whenever you make an, an, a mistake, that you're personally responsible for it. And that the graver their mistake is, the the more painful will be your responsible punishment. Uh, that is, th- that keeps you in check. You know that that ensures that you that you think twice about being too right. reckless and verging into a door when you're not a hundred percent sure that there is an actually convicted criminal behind there. Right, right, right. Yes, it it strikes me that this is largely centered on balancing the incentives and disincentives the individual faces for their own behavior. So it's an inducement to act properly, right? You can't take, um, I, I guess you can't transgress against the property of others and then hide behind some bureaucratic wall or some legal system, right? This, this really forces the individual front and center stage, right? To take full responsibility for their actions, which is a necessary aspect of a sovereign individual, right? The classic saying with great power comes great responsibility. If you have the power to act freely in this libertarian world, you also, you know, as a component of that, you have to take responsibility for your actions. Um, where it seems like the, the, so I guess where libertarian philosophy is asserting that the individual identity takes precedent the world we're in is a little bit more obscure towards the group identity a bit where we have um, individual actions able to hide behind these different bureaucratic veils. Yes, that's true. And, and here with the, the police crime, it's, it's just the same, right? They're 
it's not that police crime goes completely unpunished. You know, even in today's world, if, if police are obvious criminals, then there will be some process to punish them. But again, mm -hmm. it's it, it does not go to the victims, right? It, it, right? There is somehow wealth redistribution within the state, right? but not from state to individual. Yeah, and, and it seems like there is an a maybe this is just a perception thing, but it does seem like there's an additional burden of proof or protection uh, in favor of the police officer, right? We, we've seen a lot of police brutality in the US, but it seems like the crime, the proportionality seems to be a little bit more favorable to the police officer than it does the victimless marijuana user, let's say. Well, I, I, I think that a policeman can, even without having any proof whatsoever, uh, bur burgle into a house and, and knock down the door and, and right. knock down the person. If, in hindsight, it turns out that that person was actually the criminal, mm -hmm. right? I don't think that you need to have concrete proof before taking the action of, of punishment. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that when you take an action to punish someone who does not deserve it, mm -hmm. then you're no hero. You're just the aggressor and right. you deserve the next round of punishment, so to say. Right. Um, so that, that means that because of these dire consequences of, of acting wrongly, um, people will be more cautious. Uh, but that's a, a general tendency of, of an outcome, but it doesn't have to be the case all the time. Right? Right. You can, without any proof, Burn, like bust on the door of, of a criminal if after the fact it really turns right. out that it's a criminal but that yeah the, the invader i guess the the policeman in this case is taking the risk right he's saying i think this guy is a criminal but if he's wrong and he invades a non-criminal's property then he bears the consequences of that wrongness Exactly. And that also to make things even more complicated for the policeman comes the proportionality, the proportionality aspect, right? That if there's a bubblegum thief and mm -hmm. you burn down his house in order to convict him, right. that's probably a bit too much, yeah. right? So even though you had the right guy, your actions to get to the guy were way too harsh and aggressing against the property of, of, of this human being. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's this, the libertarian philosophy, I mean, the big theme I'm picking up is just the attempt to establish symmetry, right? Which we're talking about proportionality here, but it's symmetry, not only of proportion of crime, right? If you stole gum, then you owe two pieces of gum back. You don't deserve to be murdered per se. Uh, but there's also this uh, proportionality of incentives as well, where the, the, again, the individual deciding to engage in a certain act has both, you know, incentives, uh, I guess as a policeman, your incentive is to solve the crime and do a good job and get paid. But your disincentive is if you're wrong, uh, the liability falls on you, essentially. So this this establishing symmetry in society seems like seems like a good thing. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's funny because again, this is not a man-made construction, so to mm. say, or or you know, it's it's not just a decree by one man, but this is what you can reasonably conclude for yourself right and it just it just somehow happens that the reasonable path turns out to be the prosperous part path and and the one that allocates scarce resources in in the least um well violent and harsh way 
you know, yes. with, with a, a vast, uh, great prosperity in the outcome. But I'm I'm not a utilitarian in the sense that we ought to design a system, you know, to have nice incentives. I, I'm more of the praxeologist that if we have the right starting points and if our reasoning is correct, then that will lead to a prosperous outcome. Yes. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I mean, to recall that, I mean, as you said, Rothbard's crowning achievement was to construct this system of ethics built on property rights. And this whole thing rests on the edifice of an a priori knowledge system, right? Like man must act, man has reason. There are these objective qualities of human existence that he's building this whole thing upon. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a very powerful, that's a deep point. Um, and I think I was reading a little bit about Plato yesterday and he, not to get too far off track, but he had this, you know, thought that there was this, the realm of forms or where the good comes from. And it's not something you can derive empirically, right? This is a metaphysical theory Plato had where there are principles that are beyond observation. You can't empirically observe them necessarily. You can only reach them through a priori deductionist reasoning, right? This is like, this is what mathematics is based on logic and, and, you know, Austrian economy economics or pure economics, as we would say, is also based on this, this knowledge structure. So it's, it's much sturdier at its foundation, where something that's empirically proven, quote unquote, it's never actually proven, right? It's just not disproven effectively, um, is always subject to being disproven. You can never disprove some of these axioms like man must act. That's not, it's, it's a priori, right? You can't, you can't shake that foundation. So the fact that this entire system of ethics is built upon that gives it a much firmer foundation in the world. Yes. And, and I would argue that it's, it's true. It's, it's factually accurate. It's provable and verifiable yes. given the constraints of human actions. Yes. Right? But I mean, try denying your human action right. and try finding a, a flaw in the reasoning uh, of the masters like Rothbard. I mean, sure. He's not impeccable, but the vast amount of his reasoning is, Absolutely correct. Yes, yes. No, that's a, that's an excellent point too. Is that just because it's deduced, it can also be reinforced by empiricism, right? We we know through observation, yes. through human history, these things work better. Excellent point there. So let's shift gears, and this was a really probably a controversial aspect in the book, but this concept of children rights and abortion. Um, I guess we could start with, are children the property of their parents? And if so, where do you draw the lines? Like at some point, clearly children become adults, so they would become self-owned. How is this process viewed through the libertarian lens? This is really another fascinating case study, and you get quite shocking conclusions when you apply the same rigorous logic. Um, but again, regardless if you think the conclusions are shocking or drastic, if the reasoning is correct. Mm. The conclusions must be correct too. And I think Rothbard is spot on here uh, in, in this sense of child rights as well. So the question is, let's maybe first tackle uh, the prenatal phase, right? So uh, when the baby is still in the belly of the mother. Um, uh, the, the question is here, for one, 
is the, the fetus itself a human being? And uh, I would argue, no, he is not. Because a, a human being is, is defined as a, a person who owns itself and uh, who, who acts, right? Who, who uses his mind uh, to allocate scarce resources. And a baby has not really demonstrated to do that, especially when in the belly of, of her mother. Right? Uh, he's, he's clearly not capable of, of um, or, well, uh, so the, th this means that uh, the, the fetus has a potential to become a human human being, uh -huh. uh, to stand on his own two feet and uh, to produce, you know, and and to act, um, but he's not yet, right? So this is somewhat of a special case because the thing is clearly not a human. So humans' ethic don't don't apply this in the same way. Uh -huh. But there is some point where a child obviously turns into a human, um, uh -huh. and therefore then becomes. Applied or applied under under this ethic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's important here to reiterate the difference between morality and legality. Um, does not the Rothbardian position that uh, abortion would be legal does not imply that it is necessarily moral. Um, and I'll just with that in mind because I know this is. This is an extremely controversial issue still in the world today. Very murky where you draw the line between these two things. Very unclear, um, you know, how much, if any, say the state should have in this matter. You know, clearly it's even in, in the United States, it's a, it's a different issue state to state. So I'll read this excerpt from Rothbard. He says that, quote, abortion should be looked upon not as murder of a living person, but as the expulsion of an unwanted invader from the mother's body. Any laws restricting or prohibiting abortion are therefore invasions of the rights of mothers. So I think, you know, again, coming through this lens of property where the mother owns her own body, uh, she's essentially giving some of her property to nurture and grow the fetus but by virtue of that the fetus is her property so she can do with it as she will um i guess until is it the point of birth or what 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 changes as the child is born and starts to age yeah this you know it's it's difficult to kind of define a fetus as a human being mm -hmm. but where it's not difficult at all at all is to define the mother as a human being Mm -hmm. And she is obviously rational, and she acts, right? And 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 she has self ownership over her body, um, so obviously she can do with her body what she wants, you know. Um, and now there, magically and really magically, this new potential human being grows inside of her own property, inside of her borders of her own body, mm -hmm. uh, and. That I think the best analogy uh, to to have for this is is a guest. You know, this mm -hmm. is this this outsiding this outside entity um, kind of growing and emerging in in the body of uh, of the mother, and obviously the, uh, um, with uh, parasitic behavior. Right, mm -hmm. the the child cannot survive without the mother. He's clearly not a productive human, self self sufficient productive being yet. Right, right, and. Um, 
that means that as with any guest, as long as the the host of the property, you know, the 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 actual owner of the property consents to the guest being there, great. You know, the mother can carry out the the child as long as she wants to. But as soon as for whatever reason whatsoever, um, the, the mother no longer wants to provide her energy to nourish that parasite of a child. Mm-hmm. It's a drastic language, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, then she she very much has the right to, to uh, expel that perpetrator from her own body. Um, and th- this does not even change after birth because despite there is no longer this uh, this biological link uh, and a direct parasitical relationship, right? So that the baby literally sucks, you know, through the navel canal, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the nutrition. But still, as a young baby, a toddler is very much not self-sufficient uh, and and not yet fully developed. He does mm-hmm. not yet have a developed reason. He does not yet speak for himself. He does mm-hmm. not yet sign contracts or or engage in long-term critical resource allocation. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not yet a human as we define in first starting points, right? Uh, uh, he does not yet act. So, uh, or, so th- this, this makes it again, dif- uh, or, and this is then similar to the, the pregnancy phase, right? Uh, a woman, as long as she consents to the child being in her own house and eating the food that she provides, um, that's great. But if the mother does not want to continue to support her child, then the child simply has no right to the property of in the food and the shelter uh, of the parents. Mm. Um, it, it it again merely survives by by the in- incredible mercy and and love of the parents yeah. uh, that that sacrifice so much willingly and voluntarily, you know. But yeah, if if they don't want to provide that sacrifice, the child has no right to it. Yeah, this it does get so <laughs> murky and controversial here, especially you know with terms like parasite, and we often I, I think the libertarian school also uses the term parasite to describe the state. So it's like that's kind of a, a weird um, confluence of terms there, and this idea that you know without a developed reason and an ability to act purposefully makes a baby not human is seems a bit uh, harsh as well, because then you could make the argument that, well, after a baby's born, they don't really have, they don't act purposefully for, I don't know, a number of years. I don't know where, where do you actually draw that line? There seems to be this gradient of um, transition from being an infant into a self-aware child. Right. Um, And even then, you know, you've got, 18 ish years as they develop further into a fully autonomous human. So, yeah, but, but you see here again, right? This, the, this arbitrary age number is ludicrous. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Right. You know, why 18? Why is yeah. it 16 in some other places that that's, that's not a reasonable conclusion. And so, right. I, I, but what Rothbard here lays out so beautifully is that um, the, there is no arbitrary line in, in age or anything. There's just uh observed an actual action right you know, as soon as the child starts to think for himself to reason uh, and to act you know to allocate his to homestead resources and to voluntarily contract for resources uh, then these resources are obviously his mm-hmm. right? and he has a full right to them 
And th this goes, you know, th this is again hand in hand. The parents have no obligation whatsoever to feed the child. Right. As harsh as it might sound, you know, if they don't want to, they don't need to sacrifice their yes. scarce resources for it. But in the same type of, of reasoning, the child has no obligation whatsoever to stay with the parents. Yes. The child has very much the right to walk away. Right. Uh, if he chooses that that this relationship that he's in with the family is no longer to his benefit, he can leave. And yes. the parents have no right whatsoever to retain him. Right? So if the child could uh, kind of force his parents to give him food, well, that's just slavery. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Literally, the child would own his parents and the resources of the parents, and the child would make the decisions of that resource allocation. Mm -hmm. Right. And if the parents would get to compel the child to stay inside and to prevent the child from walking away, even though he makes the reasonable choice to do so, well, then again, the child is, is a slave and being mm -hmm. held in imprisonment here. Yeah, it gets so difficult here. Um, I want to read this one excerpt where Rothbard's making the argument that, I think to your point, that parents are not necessarily compelled or obligated to provide for their child. And um, he's referencing an argument made by an author named Evers here. And he says, quote, finally, as Evers points out, suppose that we consider the case of a person who voluntarily rescues a child from a flaming wreck that kills the child's parents. In a very real sense, the rescuer has brought life to the child does the rescuer then have a binding legal obligation to keep the child alive from then on? Wouldn't this be a quote unquote monstrous involuntary servitude that is being foisted upon the rescuer unquote. And if for the rescuer, why not also for the natural parent? So I think the, the argument he's making here is like, just because the parents gave life to the child does not mean they have this obligation to provide for the child in perpetuity. Same and like that sounds controversial, but if you look at it through this lens of someone who saved the child from burning wreckage, clearly they're not assuming an obligation to provide for the child forever, although they gave life to the child, you know, equally as the parents did. Exactly. Or a less uh, strict argument would, would be, you know, just a, a beggar on the street. No, he's clearly very needy. His children are starving and, and he needs clothes, mm -hmm. you know, but he has no right to your charity. And, and and to just take money out of your pocket. Sure, a, a merciful and, and moral person would probably feed that man, but that's that's a gratitude, uh, that's a gift, you know, and it has to become voluntary. Right. Uh, and just as the beggar cannot force you to give him money, the child can neither. Just because there is some biological blood linkage between parents and child, I don't think yeah. changes the reasoning of the argument. Yes. Yes, yeah, so all this... You know, it's it's symmetrical, it's rational, reasonable, but it does seem a bit harsh, especially coming yeah. from our current view on um, child and parent relations. But I think Rothbard sort of, he makes this other point that in a true libertarian society, this would largely be less of an issue because there would be a free market for children. And now that sounds also scary. Rothbard really pisses everyone off here, right? He, he says abortion is, is uh, uh, you know, is all right, going against the Catholics, but then you can abandon children, you know, yes, and now you right. can even sell them. And you um, can sell your rights in them. So I'll, I want to introduce this point with a couple of excerpts of his as well. Um, first, Rothbard says, quote, 
For we must realize that there is a market for children now, but that since the government prohibits sale of children at a price, the parents may now only give their children away to a licensed adoption agency free of charge. This means that we now indeed have a child market, but that the government enforces a maximum price control of zero and restricts the market to a few privileged and therefore monopolistic agencies. So this, I think, was this was shocking to me, frankly, like because when he introduces this concept of a child market, everything in me recoils. I'm like, what? Like, you can't. That doesn't make any sense. But then, you know, so that's kind of a left punch. But then here comes this right punch of, well, it already exists. It's just <laughs> intervened by the government. It has a maximum price of zero. It's given to a few monopolies and just creates, you know, massive dislocations in the marketplace. So we have a market for children already. It's just very unfree. It's not nowhere near free. You can't actually sell it for a price. Um, and let me, I'll just extend this excerpt a little further here because he kind of brings it back around. He says, quote, in fact, we find a large unsatisfied demand by adults and couples for children, along with a large number of surplus and unwanted babies neglected or maltreated by their parents. Allowing a free market in children would eliminate this imbalance and would allow for an allocation of babies and children away from parents who dislike or do not care for their children and toward foster parents who deeply desire such children. So it's amazing that there's, I mean, even here, a market mechanism seems to be the more ideal allocator. uh, I don't want to say of you know, this human capital, I guess you could say, of babies and children, um, but it would reduce the the incentives for parents to abort or maltreat their children because you could, there's a price associated with them, right? You can go and sell the child in the marketplace. And then on the other side of the market, there's parents that can't have kids for whatever reason, and they would willingly take them. Yes, and and one analogy that might break down pretty quick, but it's I think still useful is uh, let's look at for example housing markets. You know, so there are these houses, just boxes, and they're massive responsibilities, right? They continuously break the the roof is leaking, and you know, paint is cracking, and everything. So you need to continuously invest your scarce resources into taking care of this thing, mm. right? And babies are to some extent similar. You know, they they are responsibilities. You need to take care of them. Right. And and you need to spend a lot of precious Bitcoin on feeding them. Mm-hmm. And they get hungrier every day. Right? Yes, so, so so this is kind of the same thing. Now again, to some extent. Now, what what would happen if you're prohibited from selling your house? Right? From from even if you don't like it anymore, you're just not allowed to get rid of it. Right. Uh, uh, that would just mean you would abandon it sooner or later. Right. Right. Um, and, and Probably, arguably, the same as is here with children. If if there's no easy way for you to get to get out of the responsibility of taking care of your child, well, then you're just gonna neglect it because you don't want to take care of the responsibility, right? Right. So having that free market just enables the people who want to get rid of the responsibility and the people who want to have the responsibility to trade, right? And uh, because of individual subjective marginal values. That means it is a mutually beneficial exchange. Uh-huh, the uh-huh. parents who want to get rid of the kid because of whatever reason, and uh-huh. the foster parents who want to get a child and raise it for whatever reason, uh-huh. uh, they can trade. You know, and yes. uh, when they can exchange a monetary good uh, for uh, for this 
trade of property rights or of responsibilities over who takes care of the child, well, uh, that that just means that uh, you know it's a market clearing price. Nobody's yeah. left out of the picture. Everyone who wants to sell gets to sell, and everyone who wants to buy gets to buy. Yeah, the, I think uh, people that would be critical of this viewpoint would perhaps, you know, the market has such of a cold, rational, mechanical feel to it in the minds of most people. But to your point, so so it seems difficult then, I guess, to, it's okay to buy and sell commodities, but the idea of buying and selling people can feel distasteful. Um, but to yes, your point, sorry. Go ahead. Just just to hammer down on one point, right? Yes, it does feel distasteful, but keep in mind the earlier point that the child the child has at any point the right to walk away. That's right, right? including from his foster parents. Yes. No, that's a great point, and that the way I look at this now is that the the only way, and this is an uh, an a priori economic truth as well. The only way to really create value in the world is through voluntary exchange. That's when two parties both believe they will be better off having executed the trade than they were prior to the trade. That's what induces voluntary exchange. Um, what, what economists call the inequality of exchange, right? Both parties think they're getting more value than they're giving up. So that is the point, I think, right? Like it would, you'd have a more valuable outcome for all parties involved, if it was voluntary and you remove the coercion and compulsion of the state, which is by definition involuntary, right? We're going to take your children and give them to social services and put them in this foster home, right? There's, there's at least partially an involuntary, involuntary element to each one of those transactions, and that is destructive to value. Yes, exactly. And it's especially destructive, well, not just to the parents, right, who don't even get compensated for for giving away their child, Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, you know, even if they would like to have had that, Mm -hmm. they cannot. That's one thing. But also, of course, of the child, because the child is very much prohibited from running away from the state. Right. Uh, And and that is, again, just just slavery. So, yes, child rights are very sensitive and, and difficult topic, but it's not like that we have it perfectly figured out in today's system. There's yeah. there's a massive amount of theft and and involuntary uh, uh, imprisonment happening with with numerous children. It's 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 a tragedy. It it really is. As, as Roger Ver would say, babies are dying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like I'm. This makes a lot of sense, but there's, and I, I have a daughter. She's almost three, and I'm so excited to educate her and read to her about all of these, you know, deeper topics that I was not taught in school. But this is one area where like, I might skip the Rothbard until she's a little <laughs> bit older. Because I don't want my seven-year-old to be like, you know, do this or I'm running away, dad. Like there's, it's such an interesting, <laughs> it's so interesting because by running away, that is your child expressing their self-sovereignty, right? In the exactly. ultimate form. It's like, I turn this into exchange doesn't work for me anymore. I'm out. And Oh, that's just shocking for for a parent. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's simultaneously your your ultimate end goal. Right? You don't want to take care of your kids, you know, forever. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you also, you know, like this is super risky and and reckless to be a to be an individual and to act, you know, and and to be a, a risk taking entrepreneur. Like you're gonna fall on your face more often than you actually, you know, succeed. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's dangerous, and and it's it's for sure justified that you will want to keep your little girl close and and foster her and and prepare her for that craziness of life before she makes that step of leaving your house. Right. Right. So, so sure. Right. Like in the best case. You're going to raise her, you know, until she has a decent age and then support her even, you know, through going, you know, through the first jobs and whatnot. Um, but ultimately, if she wants to run away, well, you cannot stop her. And if you want to have, you know, your house for yourself and, and get her out, yeah. well, it's your house, you know. Right. And, and then again, in, in today's system, like there could be some bureaucrat just coming in and deeming that the quality of life of the child is not sufficient in your upraising or, right. or that, you know, the, the, the radical ideas of individual sovereignty that you uh, preach to your child are, are very dangerous ideas. And that therefore they just take away your child and that you no longer have the right to, to take care of, uh, of her and keep her in her house. Yes. Yeah. Once again, when you remove the market mechanism, Right. You introduce it still has to be resolved somehow. So now you're yeah. introducing you're taking away the the mechanism of voluntary exchange and introducing the bureaucratic mechanism of involuntary exchange, which necessarily inserts the arbitrariness, the whim, the opinion of the bureaucrat. And it makes it a non it's a non-standard process at that point too, because then it's all like, mm -hmm. who's the bureaucrat? Who do they know? You know, it's, it becomes this power game versus a market that is just very, very cut and dry, right? It's like, if you, if you are a voluntary participant to this transaction, you are expressing that there is value to be created or obtained for you as is the counterparty to the transaction. And um, it seems like we really need, we really need to accept that about the free market. I think that it's almost a sacred forum where if you, if you want value in the world, that's the only way to create it. Um, and I yeah. kind of, you know, I struggle with the language here, but it really comes down to voluntarism versus involuntarism for me. But that seems so foreign and abstract to people. Um, but it, it makes sense in my mind, at least. Yeah, it's it, it, it really is a, a good base to build upon but again this the thing is if you apply it consistently you will get really scary outcomes like this chapter on on children rights mm -hmm. right and that you do have a right to to kill the fetus mm -hmm. um like that's no oh, that's heavy <laughs> it, it, yeah. it really is so that these edge cases in my opinion serve well for for testing if this monumental construct that we created still feels right. Like if it's, if it's still, even in those crazy edge cases, seems to be a reasonable and, and, and good and useful choice. Uh, and, and here again, you know, out of all the possibilities, individual property rights, yet again, also in the context of children, provide not just the best ex explanation of how things are, but also the most suitable resolution of any conflict that could come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to chew on, man. And it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I hope the, I, the more that I think about it and the more I look at it, the more sense that it makes, but it is quite different than what exists in the world today. Um, I guess the, 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 we could at least hope for these. I don't know if this experiment, this libertarian society has ever been run before. I'm not, not aware, but you would at least hope that 
in the historical arc of humans, we could try this in certain jurisdictions, right? And just let people voluntarily move there or move away if they don't like the rules. It seems like the only way we'd figure out an optimal rule set for human organization is to experiment with things like this. Whereas today, I think this is this, these ideas and concepts, um, again, maybe this is the commingling of morality and legality in the minds of people. They would just, they would dismiss it outright. You know, there wouldn't even be an experiment. So I don't, do you know anything about that? Is, has this historically been tried or, or anything of that sort? Also, for example, this proportionality punishment theory, right? that's ancient. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that goes back all, all, all the way. Um, child markets? Good question. I, I guess just, um, you know, giving giving away your child was always the option in, in any society, in to be honest. Society, you know, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there were always institutions like, you know, often the church, for example, who took in, you know, unwanted children right. um, and, and charities to do so. Uh, like adoption per se, I think it's a pretty old phenomenon too. And, yeah. you know, maybe to an extent, even these, um, uh, you know, foster childs of medieval times, you know, where, where sometimes even for negotiation for kind of macro-political reasons, you would give child hostages somewhat to, to be fostered uh, at, at uh, the other side, uh, you know, to have skin in the game and kind of build relationships in between the tribes. And now that's, again, somewhat similar, and that's well-established, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, as, as Rothbard pointed out, there, there is always a, a market for, for anything, right. Right? In, in, including for the responsibility to take care of future human beings who currently cannot take care of themselves. Right? There, there is a market. It, there has always been. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. It's just, are you going to embrace it and, and achieve the benefits of the, the great resource allocation right. of individual private property rights and, and the free market exchange system? Yes. Or will you try to suppress it, uh, form some tyrannical bureaucracy to define what is good living standards for a child and, and somehow redistribute children to whom you think is, is more adequate to raise them? Um, but yeah, I don't think how that scenario will work out for, for anyone, uh, including the people who, who try to govern this, because yeah. they will eventually run out of children too. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah it's almost... Again, we have to accept that the market is the best allocator of resources. Even in this case, you know, we're just categorizing children as resources, but it would create maybe the argument here too would be that even from a utilitarian standpoint, this would create the most happiness as well, right? You're the parents that don't want children have a way to give them up voluntarily. The parents that do want children have a way to obtain them voluntarily. The children have the option to leave voluntarily at any point. Um, it, yeah, it seems like that There's would allow no conflict to sort itself out the best way possible without introducing any arbitrariness, right? Where it's just some guy's opinion, right? You're, you're removing, I guess you're leaving the opinion of the individual to be as freely expressed as possible and mitigating the opinion or the enforced opinion of a third party, which seems like a good outcome. Yeah, the decision is made by the individuals, right? By yeah. both the victim and, uh, uh, like, yeah, basically by the victim. You know, if, if the child feels himself victimized by the parents, yes, he makes the decision to be sovereign and to live on his own, right? Or right. to move to another family. Right. Um, so ultimately, it's just who makes the decision. 
And is yes. it going to be you or is it going to be some elected bureaucrat? Yes. And, and to zoom out just a little bit, I mean, uh, beneath this too, you would presume that if there was a free market for something as controversial as children, you'd have a more general free market. So the world would be a lot wealthier in that situation. So the, the, the cost that children inflict on parents would also be presumably less lessened overall. So I think this whole, the current conflict between parent and child and the need to provide and the cost to provide and all that would also be lessened by the free market. And then should there, should a conflict remain, it would be further resolvable by the free market. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and again, it's also clearly defined when conflict arises, right? As mm -hmm. soon as you break the property right of someone else. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, just saying that, that uh, the parents have the responsibility to take care of the child doesn't mean that they have the right to, to hurt the child. Right. Right. Or, or to physically harm it. Right. Um, uh, like that's, you know, that's because of the potentiality of the child becoming a human Right. In the future, that stopping that progress is just simply not your right. right. Um, uh, like actively, again, right? Uh, but it, there's this there's this nuanced differentiation between actively aggressing against uh, a child and just passively not helping the child. Mm -hmm. right? There's mm -hmm. a difference here, and it mm -hmm. it will become tricky in some scenarios. With you know, uh, like you have a child in your home and you just decide to no longer feed it. So you just, you know, let it sit in the in, in, in its bed and you go out and for the weekend and party, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't even tell anyone about that. Mm -hmm. Now, would that be considered aggression against the child? And, you know, I, I would probably say yes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so <laughs> complicated. Um, but, okay, so just to put a button on this, and the child claims property in themselves once effectively once they decide to say no right like back to this the root word of sovereignty being no the parent says do this and the child's like this is not working out for me no i'm gonna leave now in that moment the child becomes a, a sovereign individual yes uh but there's you know children say no to a lot of things yeah yeah that's where i, I was just <laughs> You know, yeah. so if, once they find out that word and the power that it brings, then they quickly fall in love with it. It seems <laughs> <laughs> so. And you know, again, here this is like ah, there's this difficulty here again between ethics and morality, right? Sure, you cannot uh, initiate force against the property of of the child as soon as it acts and and decides, but also you don't want to raise an asshole. <laughs> then, right. Yeah. So there's there's this kind of you know long term parental guidance of hey if you do this even though you want to do it now mm -hmm, and sure you mm -hmm. could do it in the long run it will really harm you. Yeah. And I guess it's more of a question of uh, parentage of how do you deal with those types of situation, right? And and do you become aggressive against the child and start you know for example beating it in order to realize to not do that. Um, right. Or is it more going to be a, well, okay, try it out, you know, uh, see if you can fix the problem. I'm 100% sure you're going to fall flat on the face and you're not going to succeed, mm. but you're not going to listen to me, right? You have to experience that and experience the failure as that yeah. is part of the learning process, right? And that cannot just be given and transferred to another person. Uh, so here again, you know, 
legal ethics and yes. what is the maximum amount of viol or force that can be applied in defense yeah. is fundamentally different to individual morality and how mm -hmm. to be a good person and how to raise a good person. Because arguably these, these questions are infinitely more difficult in the realm of psychology. And I don't think that there are as nice of reasonable proofs as in praxeology. So another general theme perhaps I'm detecting here is that in the libertarian philosophy, recourse to the legal system is typically a measure of last resort, right? Like you want to sort these things out at the local, say, market level or just, you know, arbitrating them yourself or maybe even with your community or local church or neighborhood or whatever before you don't want to involve the law until it's some kind of sell property rights have been violated effectively, right? And there's a real dispute, an, an, an intractable dispute of some kind. That's when you may need to have recourse to the law, but it really is, if I'm detecting it correctly, kind of a measure of last resort. Exactly. And right? so in the most common case, in the best case, everyone agrees, everyone yeah. voluntarily trades, everyone is better off, no victim, no crime. Yeah. Right. So no legal system needed whatsoever. There is no conflict. Right. Yeah. Then the next option is that there, there has been theft. One person was violated in his property mm -hmm. rights by another person. Uh, but still here, you know, that person might uh, forgive the other person and, and not try to take away his property. That's the first case, case scenario. The second is, is that individual himself takes the justice into his own hands and slaps the thief and takes his bubble gum back, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the other things like mm -hmm. self-responsibility and, and self-justice, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then ultimately, once once the, the the punishment becomes too unmanageable for just one person to do, you're going to need to convince other people to team up in retaining back your property right and inflicting the punishment on the criminal. Uh, and in a, in, a, in a free libertarian society, other people are, well, other people can come to, to your support in whatever, for whatever reason or not, regardless if you have proofs or not. But of course, if you get the wrong criminal, so to say, and, and you uh, violate an innocent, then even the people who helped you to get there are criminals and ought to be punished. Mm -hmm. um, but And therefore, because of that skin in the game, it is likely that on the free market will be um, uh, investigative services mm -hmm. and, and jury services and police work services uh, that can be purchased voluntarily by anyone uh, oh, yeah. to make or to help make a better decision of when it is just to apply the force. Right. So, but, but yes, that entire legal system construct comes very at the end of the line after mm -hmm. there was some, some uh, aggression where the victim actually wants to punish the criminal uh, and where he cannot even do it alone. Right. Uh, and, you know, that takes away the vast majority of human action and really leaves the small niche of, of malevolence that well, obviously everyone has. Yeah, and would reduce the cost burden of the state too, right? Would you just resolve these disputes or conflicts at a more local slash market level, you would there'd be less demand for services uh, that the state currently monopolizes. So that in theory, I guess, would reduce tax burdens. And um, Well, in the libertarian society, there are zero tax burdens. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a whole nother topic. Okay, so 
that all right very illuminating discussion there a lot to think about uh a lot of gray area which is just endlessly fascinating um let's talk about another this was uh, probably controversial as well the the idea of blackmail um so i'll open this with a couple of excerpts from Rothbard on the topic of blackmail he says quote the right to blackmail is deducible from the general property right in one's person and knowledge and the right to disseminate or not disseminate that knowledge how can the right to blackmail be denied he goes on to say what exactly is blackmail blackmail is the offer of a trade it is the offer to trade something usually silence for some other good usually money if the price required by the blackmailer for his silence is worth less than the secret the secret holder will pay off and accept the lesser of the two evils he will gain the difference to him between the value of the secret and the price of the blackmailer so you know there are times when perhaps an individual doesn't want certain information about them or about some some of their property or their other economic interests shared uh and i think rothbard's arguing here that that's a perfectly valid free market transaction someone approaches you and says hey i know this harmful secret about you or your property if you don't pay me X, I'm going to share it in a way that could be harmful to you. Uh, the is it a? I mean, it's not a victim technically. It's just the the person being blackmailed can agree to that, and that's it, right? <laughs> no one's harmed. It's a victimless crime, I guess you might say. Uh, yes, to, to an extent. And again, if if you analyze it from individual private property. From your starting point, it it does make sense, right? So you own you can only own scarce resources because that's mm -hmm. where potential conflict arises, right? And your scarce resource is your body, and so you control that and you can yes. move it. One way that you can move it is to to speak, you know, to make weird sounds that are somehow recognizable patterns. <laughs> <laughs> and the patterns that you formulate here are not scarce, right? I can right. speak the same words as Robert has, and right. We are not diminished, right? So there's a difference. There's no there's no exclusivity or rivalry with words. So knowledge is non-scarce, we would say. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just patterns, you know. Yes. Uh, um, and the use of one pattern doesn't diminish that another person cannot think of right. the pattern. Um, so property rights obviously do not apply here, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not necessary for resource allocation. Property rights are a tool, you know. Um, and now that means if if I would somehow find out uh, that uh, you know, some ba something bad happened with with Robert. Like he, I know that he, you know, cheated on his wife. A mm -hmm. Common example. Um, then I, I, I know that information. It's not my information. It's also mm -hmm. not Robert's information. And he cannot prevent me from using that information to think and to speak. Right. Um, and that is interestingly for even if it's not even true. Right? Let's say Robert is an upstanding guy and would never cheat on his beloved, but I say he will, like, or he mm. did. Right? That's still my right to do. I can speak on my mm. own land and property. I can say whatever I want, frankly. Yeah. True um, or untrue. You can say whatever you want. It, it, yeah. Right. 
Um, and now you might convince me to not say certain things. And there are numerous ways that you can convince me. You know, just by us being good friends and you telling me, hey, please keep, keep that to yourself. You know, just because I like you and respect you, that will probably, like, the, the value of our future relationship will be more valuable than mm -hmm. spreading the secret in many cases. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And then it's obvious that I, I will not do it. You know? And even if I would spill the secret, I didn't steal anything from you. But of course, I'm an asshole. You know? So mm -hmm. difference between ethics and morals again. Um, and then that just means that if you want to give me some extra incentivation to not um, divulge the secret on top of our friendship, and or even if we're not friends at all, but complete strangers, then if if you value my silence, me restricting my unlimited use of my body, um, in exchange, if you value that more for whatever reason than the money, and I value the money more than proliferating the, this, these words and, and using my inalienable right to silence, um, then sure, we can trade. Both of us are better off. There is no victim. Right. So let me, let's take it a step further. Assuming that transaction is mutually agreed upon and executed where someone pays for someone else's silence and then that individual goes on to tell the secret anyways, what, what happens then? Yes, th this would be, a, a, again, a theft. Mm. Not because you spelled out the information, but because you took my money uh, under the contract that you would not uh, give out that information. Right. right. So you didn't steal the information or you didn't break or, or steal my reputation, right. um, but you stole my money. Stole and that was the property. Crime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. See, it's, it is sort of akin to the promise versus property transfer earlier because it's not the information, right? The promise would just be information and intention and expectation, whatever. But it's only when property is transferred that there is recourse of some kind, right? That that's the which is just so powerful. I think it's just so it's, it, it is, it cuts through so much of this complexity. It's just like, what, yeah. just follow the money, right. Or follow the property. <laughs> um, so that's an excellent point. Uh, so he goes on and I would just, just a one thing to throw out here. We don't have to talk about it, but this is also why intellectual property is BS, Right, intellectual property is is a scam essentially. I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole we can go into another time. But you can't own information, right? To your point, it's a pattern. Yes, uh, but uh, here is again some nuance in the argument. And uh, Stefan Kinsella's book against intellectual property is great on this, mm -hmm. and he is very much in line with Rothbard's thinking that patents, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. are, are very much illegal. Um, mm -hmm. But that for copyrights, uh, for example, uh, are, are not, right? Mm. Because the difference is with a copyright, I, I give you away the material, uh, mm. or, or sorry, I, I give you a scarce good, but specifically, um, or I give you some good or even information about the good, but under the specific condition um, that you cannot proliferate it to others. Mm. Um, and then you give me the money, right? Mm. So there, there was an exchange. And if you would now do proliferate the information uh, to others, then you got the good 
uh, and did not pay the adequate amount. You know, the, the contract was broken mm. and property was indeed violated here. But again, it's it it always has to be with with the money transfer or with a property right, right transfer. There cannot yes. be theft if there was no property right transfer. Period. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Excellent point there. So I'm going to go into another component here of this blackmail, which is really interesting, which is the concept of reputation. And people commonly think that. You know, it's commonly said your reputation is your most important asset. Some people describe it as collateral for doing deals. You know, if you've got a good reputation that people will just want to do business with you uh, in whatever capacity. But Rothbard makes the excellent point that you don't own your reputation. It's not yours, right? It's this, I'll read, you know, he says is purely a function of the subjective attitudes and beliefs about him contained in the minds of other people. So this is not, I don't own the minds of other people or what they think about me. So you don't, to describe your reputation as property is incorrect, right? It's actually, these are opinions widely held in a marketplace that you as the uh, one the reputation is about, you do not possess those opinions. People form them freely because people are self-owned. So I'll read one excerpt here, which he, he kind of connects us to, to libel. Rothbard says, quote, the counter view and the current basis for holding libel and slander, especially for false statements, to be illegal is that every man has a quote unquote property right in his own reputation that, and he's referring to an earlier example here, that Smith's falsehoods damage that reputation and that therefore Smith's libels are invasions of Jones's property right in his reputation and should be illegal. Yet again, on closer analysis, this is a fallacious view. So that's interesting. <laughs> you know, that, that really flips the idea of reputation on its head. How does libel, how is libel then viewed in through a libertarian lens? Is it a is it a valid crime? No, it's not, because uh, as you perfectly lined out, right, you don't own the minds of others and, and their perception of you. You know, that's just not yours, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, you couldn't even enforce it or control it, uh, ultimately. Uh, so again, the question is just, uh, what scarce property are we actually using here? Mm -hmm. um, and let's say you walk, one of common examples, like you walk in a crowded theater and you yell fire, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then the people who bought the tickets are disturbed from the show because they have to evacuate. Now, did you steal that enjoyment of, of, uh, of the cinema from them? Mm -hmm. um, and, and was it therefore wrong to do so? And I, that was a, lo a long conundrum in philosophy for a while. But again, it's perfectly described with property rights. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just what do you shout, but where do you shout it? Right. Where are you standing right now? Where's yeah. the physical place that you stand? Are you in your own house and your own property that you justly acquired? Mm -hmm. Speak whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Are you in my house? Well, no, then you, you cannot just run into my house and give me a two-hour lecture of why proof of stake is better than proof of work. <laughs> and I'm going to kick you out very quickly. Yeah, you might get shot <laughs> every right to do so. Right? And it, it, of course, also goes for, for print media. Right? So if you own the newsletter and you bought the paper and the ink and the labor to print and yeah. to distribute, you can write whatever you want. You know, if you run a server on a computer in the internet uh, and you put data on there, you can put whatever you want on your own hardware. Right? Right. Um, so, so ultimately, the one who controls the scarce resources, the one who has the property rights in the actually exclusive and rivalrous goods, 
you know that is the person who makes the decision yes. uh, who can and cannot speak at that place yeah and he yeah rothbard goes on to describe how the current legal structure with with outlawing libel is actually counterproductive uh and i'll read an excerpt here he says quote for in the current situation when false libels are outlawed the average person tends to believe that all derogatory reports spread about people are true otherwise they'd sue for libel this situation discriminates against the poor since poorer people are less likely to file suits against libelers. Furthermore, the current system discriminates against poor people in another way, for their own speech is restricted since they are less likely to disseminate true but derogatory knowledge about the wealthy for fear of having costly libel suits filed against them. So this idea of, you know, and this is prevalent in in the modern age i think i mean it's it, uh, i want to say the the fake satoshi guy craig wright was suing people for libel right exactly and and who is who is to you know prove or disprove it uh, yeah. this is super murky like yeah. the, what is the reputation you know what is your honor uh, what is the actual loss of scarce resources that you occurred because right. someone spoke falsehoods about you it's super difficult to quantify Right? And that's just, I think that's just more of a, it's, it's not really a, a, like, it's not really the symptom, but it's, it's, you know, it's, or it, it's more like that because it is unreasonable on the first principles of individuality. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is un, like just unenforceable and, and nonsensical. Like this concept doesn't make sense in the reality that we live in. It might make sense in a world where humans no longer act and scarce. There's no difference between scarce and non-scarce resources. Right. Then, sure, maybe your idea makes sense, but that's just not the world that we live in. And then the people hearing, uh, you know, these people attacking someone's reputation or engaging in what would typically be considered libel. If if you could not sue for libel, people would naturally be more skeptical, right, about what they hear. Because like you would hear this thing, and uh, you know, to Rothbard's point, if suing for libel is legal, then they're just going to assume it's true. Because otherwise, the person would have sued for libel, and that distorts. That's unfavorable to the poor who can't do that. Also, causes the poor, incentivizes the poor to be less outspoken about the rich because they could be sued for libel. Um, whereas, if it were not legal. Then the end of this again puts the the emphasis back on the individual. It's like you now have to think critically, check your sources. Like, what is the old saying? And believe half what you see and nothing what you hear. <laughs> right. This would kind of restore that 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 old principle. Yeah, very much. Right, and it also assumes that we can like definitively say truths with certainty about you know these things like human motivation uh and and whether something was meant as intentionally harmful in a libelous context mm. you know that's like humans are just too complex to have a verifiable and objective proof for that you know that's that's again the 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 beauty of praxeology is that we we kind of dumb things down it, it, in a sense like w- this is a very 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 limited context that praxeological reasoning can be said to be true and accurate mm-hmm. and verifiable, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very limited context. And it's, it has nothing to do with motivation, right? It's all about observatory action. 
Yeah. Uh, if we talk about motivation, that's psychology, and that's just so complicated that I don't think anyone has developed any sort of rigorous proof system um, out there. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, we're just back to the the lens of property, and then if you engage in libel, no one's property has been transgressed because the person that was quote unquote libeled against, they do not own their reputation. It's not property. So it's a victimless crime. Um, so again, yeah, it just resolves the murkiness, right? There's this, it's very complex and who said, he said, he said, she said, et cetera. But when you just cut through to the property, it, it, it seems to kind of clear, clear the air. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Let's branch into another <laughs> interesting, possibly controversial topic, the topic of bribery. Um, you know, this is, I think the standard, the standard view on bribery is that it's a really bad thing. Uh, it's an act of corruption. Um, not, you know, it's... It's bad. I guess it's all it's criminal, right? We think bribery is criminal. Um, but I'd like to introduce Rothbard's views once again by reading an excerpt. So he says, quote, in the case of bribes, therefore, there is nothing illegitimate about the briber, but there is much that is illegitimate about the bribee, the taker of the bribe. Legally, there should be a property right to pay a bribe, but not to take one. It is only the taker of a bribe who shouldn't be, I'm sorry, who should be prosecu prosecuted. So I think as I understand it, the, the point here is that the person paying the bribe is just freely transferring their property, but the person taking a bribe is actually violating, you know, presumably they're doing it in exchange for something and that something is usually not their property, right? Like if you're paying me a bribe to, um, I think he gave the example of the disc jockey, right? Where if someone, the disc jockey takes a bribe from another record label to play a record, this is maybe kind of an antiquated example because we don't have this so much, but to play a record more frequently than he otherwise would, that he's actually transgressing against the property of the radio owner who contracted him to play 
the music that the public most wanted or that he, you know, using his judgment um, would most satisfy the taste of the public so that the, the actual crime would be against the owner of the radio station. So not the payer of the bribe per se, but the taker of the bribe transgressing against the property interest of the owner of the radio station. Yeah, that's, that's a good example. Uh, but also just to highlight here, if the disc jockey and the radio owner would have some agreement that it's okay for the disc jockey to accept tips, for example, for playing the songs that other people like, well, then again, there would not be some theft here, right? Uh, if uh, as, as the radio host or radio station owner agreed to it. Um, but yeah, in, in any case, I would argue for the person paying the bribe, um, you know, he is in, in a state of uneasiness right now. And he sees mm -hmm. that this outside party, this entrepreneur can solve his problem and he pays him for it. Uh, and then th that other person solves his problem. I don't think, or yeah, I don't see why this would be non-beneficial for, for anyone. Like this is mutually beneficial for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and also one thing is that in a free market, we almost never see bribery, right? Like mm. you just pay the market price and mm -hmm. that's it. And if one parse, if one entrepreneur like expects you to bribe him and to pay him extra, well, that's just an addition to the price. And you can see if there is a competition to provide the better service cheaper uh, without that level of bribe. Where we do, however, see a lot of bribery going on is, of course, in the government, right? Because, well, here we are, we are already uh, coercing people uh, to fund them, and there's already this convoluted right. decision-making process theater that that is so vaguely defined and so opaque and not verifiable that it's just ripe for, for being right. used for, uh, for bribes and for shifting that opaque decision-making mechanism in your favor. And so there's massive amounts of lobbying uh, of the government, but I think that this is somewhat of a, a diff or, okay, there's, there's one thing is to lobby uh, and to, to pay so that certain unjust laws get defined and enforced by the state. Right. That's one thing. Uh, and, and that's evil, obviously. That's like paying someone to, to steal from others. Um, and then the other side here is to bribe, for example, a low-level bureaucrat to you know, get a stamp on your paperwork mm -hmm. um, that was not according to the rule set, you know, for example. Well, here, the person paying the bribe obviously is not the victim. He gets what he wants. He just has to pay the money. Um, the person who... Uh, and and the bureaucrat. Well, I'm curious if he would be the the criminal here against the state, um, and that kind of depends if the state actually acquired a just property right in the power to issue that stamp and right. to be in the way. And since kind of the against state, the taxpayer, right? At least because the the state's funded by the property of the taxpayer. Yeah, that's yeah. Actually, that's that's the other thing. Um, that yeah, that that he would probably break the employment contract that he has signed uh, with with the government here. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's actually, and I think Rothbard brings this up. Um, that I forgot the name of the author who actually who points this out, but he says that um, you know you have the right to uh, 
when you meet a bureaucrat on the street or anyone who has consumed more taxes than he has produced, mm-hmm. you have the right to just slap him and harass him and, and, <laughs> and you know, actually uh, punish him just for the fact that he's being a tax consumer. And then it is actually the, the duty of that, uh, of that bureaucrat to prove that he is, in fact, a tax payee and uh. not a tax consumer. And only yeah. if he can make that proof does he have a right to to uh, to punish you for that unjust um, assertion uh, or of violence uh, against that bureaucrat when in fact he was not. Um, now again, this as long as you see that government action is inherently involuntary and inherently theft of property, then yes, this is just a defense mm-hmm. from the public uh, of the right. taxpayer uh, who who has like who has just by the fact that the other person is a tax consumer. There is an actual involuntary shift of property rights, and the tax consumer is, in fact, Mm -hmm. stealing from the entire public, uh, who is tax payees on that. Uh, And therefore, yes, uh, uh, punishment here would would definitely be in order. Yeah. Yeah, You're touching on an excellent point that Rothbard makes, that we can distinguish two types of people under, under one government, and there are the people on a net basis that are taxpayers. So these are the people being stolen from their property is being violated via taxation, inflation to fund the government. And then the government is then allocating out those proceeds to the second class of people, which on a net basis are tax consumers, right? They're actually benefiting from the stolen proceeds. Um, And this is not, they're not fixed cohorts, right? This is constantly changing based on maybe you've paid a bunch of tax one year and the next year you're, you know, on welfare, right? You're a recipient, but there's always those two categories. And then the government just is this kind of arbitrary intermediate layer that's allocating the stolen proceeds of taxation and inflation according to whatever, you know, the, the popular whim is. Um, it could be, well, it could be a singular authoritarian making the decisions, or it could be, um, a, you know, a democratically elected ruler or set of rulers as well. But in any case, you always have these two categories or these two cohorts of people. Yes. And in uh, Man, Economy and State and Power and Markets, he goes even deeper than that, saying that there are three types of intervention. Right, so there's the uh, autarkic intervention. That's basically that an external party tells you that you cannot use your own property in your own body. Like that's mm. prohibition, for example. Mm. That's a third party saying that you cannot drink that bottle of beer. You know. Mm. Um, then we have binary intervention, which means that uh, the 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 taxer, the aggressor, takes the property of one individual directly, right? It's a, it's a wealth transfer from tax victim to tax master or, or tax uh, criminal. Uh, and here, uh, like, yeah, this obviously shifts property from one to the other. And then the third type of intervention is, is triangular intervention. Mm-hmm. And that is when I, as, uh, uh, as a monopoly, or I, as the government, would say that Robert must do business with uh, Ben over there, mm-hmm. uh, right? So I'm compelling two other people to sign a contract where either one or even both of them don't consent to it voluntarily. Mm. And so these are the three types of aggression that tax consumers uh, enact uh, on tax payees. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and so it's, 
you know, in the case of bribery, it seems to be more prevalent in government precisely because government has this monopoly on gatekeeping oftentimes. So if an individual wants, you know, access to the gate, whether it's, it could be anything, could be a passport, could be a business license, whatever, um, whatever exclusive service the government's arrogated itself, um, that people will have a tendency to want to bribe to get access to this gate, right? They'll just be, it's a monopolist, right? So they're paying um, for access to this monopolist, monopolistic service. And this actually induces dishonesty, right? Whereas in a free market, you know, from the perspective of the bribe payer, he's effectively just lowering his selling price, right? He's saying, here's, I'm going to sell this to you for $100, but I also have to pay a bribe of $5 to get the guy to buy the thing. So I'm effectively selling it for $95. The only difference is that, you know, one, you know, uh, I'm receiving a hundred from the company and paying five to the, the purchasing agent, for instance. Um, but on, you know, in, in the, the difference here is that in the market, there's the competition, right. That would actually induce honesty. So he's effectively, lowered his selling price, um, which he could then, you know, $5 is just going to the purchasing agent, then he could still have the same margin selling to a company at $95. So there's the, the, the point here is that the customer optionality or competition keeps service providers honest. And this is why monopolists are inherently dishonest, right? They don't, they're not accountable to the preferences of their customer in any way. So the individual bureaucrat will is more likely to take a bribe, violate the contract, technically with the taxpayers, I guess. He's representing the taxpayers um, to benefit himself at the expense uh, at the expense of transgressing against the property of taxpayers. Yes, exactly. And just to to hammer that home is that a monopoly is defined uh, as someone applying force against a new market participant entering uh, the, this market for providing goods and services to mm -hmm. the customers. Right. As 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 long as there's nobody putting a gun to your head telling you stop producing that service or else, there's no monopoly. Right. And and uh, but obviously in today's day and age there are numerous monopolies and there are many ways that you're restricted from starting a new business, uh, licensing just being one of the most mm -hmm. grievous ones. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. So the bribery that was an interesting one because it's not, you know, it's bifurcated where the bribe payer is not doing anything wrong, but the bribe taker is. So I thought that was that was very interesting. Um, Let's talk about boycotts too. So this is perhaps relevant. We call this, you could call this getting canceled in a way in modern social media sphere where they talk about canceling an individual. What they really mean is they're, they're boycotting them. And so I'll introduce this again with an excerpt. Rothbard says, quote, of particular interest here is that the boycott is a device which can be used by people who wish to take action against those who engage in activities, which we consider licit, which is to say legal, but which they consider immoral. If on the other hand, um, oh, I'm sorry, that I'll just leave the excerpt of that. So this is when people have determined uh, a business activity to be 
you know, it's, it's legal, but whatever they're doing is immoral. Maybe this is like an abortion clinic, right? People could then go and picket around the abortion clinic and boycott it effectively trying to signal to people in the world to not use the services of whatever the provider is in this case, an abortion clinic. And as I understand it, Rothbard's making the argument that that's perfectly legal where you cross the line is if you restrict access to the property, right? If you prevent the owners of the clinic from using their property to run a business, or if you prevent individuals from entering the clinic, which that's, you know, they're using their bodily property to go inside of this establishment. Uh, that's when it becomes, it crosses the line from boycott to transgression against property. Exactly. Right? And for example, if you're a restaurant, uh, you know, providing foods to that abortion clinic, well, you're, you have the free choice to stop having that customer and stop producing for him and, and sending the food to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that obviously you can choose with whom you work with. Um, and uh, there's even no nothing wrong in spreading information uh, tailor-made to to convince others to stop using that service and again this information can even be complete false mm-hmm. you know that uh, as the the clinic has no right in his reputation right um but of course n- no uh, newspaper or or online information stream has the the obligation to publish the falsehoods, obviously, right? So with a good editorial process that will hopefully not get through. Yep. Um, but per, per se, you can have a very, very effective pressure strategy uh, that is based on a, a boycott without violating the property of anyone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I said previously, with this voluntary prison society, basically, it relies on having a boycott. Right, that every good businessman, every every moral businessman, so to say, would stop providing goods and services to those people that have committed immoral acts. Right, even after that uh, they were punished, let's say, uh, or um, even unethical acts uh, before they are punished. Right, you have every right to not house Nazi uh, soldiers in in your barn and provide them with food. Yeah, it's and there's a, there's a. Another problem here that really is rooted in public property, which is a bit of an oxymoron, actually, um, as Rothbard makes the point that when it's public property, you can't discern, you know, who who is permitted to use that property and who's not. It, it just doesn't. Um, the, these the again to your point, the allocation of scarce resources is not clearly defined. So. There's a problem here that the picketers themselves, if they're on the public property of the streets, that wouldn't be an issue if everything was private property, because then the owner of the private property could determine if the picketers were allowed to gather there or not. So and on, on this point, Rothbard says, quote, if, on the other hand, the street in front of the picketed building were owned by private owners then these owners would have the absolute right to decide on whether picketers could use their street in any way that the owners saw fit, unquote. So this idea of a boycott um, seems like it's compounded by the, the idea of public property, where if we just had totally privatized property that the, the murkiness of picketers obstructing, uh, you know, 
customer entrance into an establishment would be lessened because they would either be allowed to be there or not based on the judgment of the the owners of private property. I guess this is more tied towards demonstrations, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. gathering a group of people to shout very loudly about a certain cause, basically. And and here again, the, the question is on where do these people stand? Right? Yes. And, and who owns the land underneath yes. them and who gets to make decisions of which person are allowed to be on that land. Mm-hmm. And if the owner of the land says, sure, gather and cry your hearts out to end the Fed uh, and, and kill the wall, kill wall street. Right. Uh, well, the question is if, so as, as long as the, the owner of the land agrees, everything is fine. There's again, no victim per se, yeah. no victim in the reputation because there's no ownership and reputation, no victor, victim in, in the land because there's no trespassing as it was voluntarily agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, no no victim, uh, no crime. Mm-hmm. But yes, the problem comes when all of a sudden you give control and the decision-making power of land to a random group of people that are constantly changing and have very opaque mechanisms mm-hmm. compared to the very obvious homesteading and, and contractual arrangement of private property rights, uh, then yeah, that, that becomes very difficult or it becomes very easy for people to misuse that, right? Mm-hmm. And for, uh, for, for example, the the owner of the of the store or the abortion clinic that is under boycott, for them to take illegal actions mm-hmm. to remove all of the people from in front of his building, mm-hmm. you know, all of the demonstrators, for example, um, that because that big. Uh, abortion clinic has the lobby power, you know, to convince the bureaucrats to send in the police. Mm. Um, but yes, the problem would not really be there, you know, right. if if there is just the the neighbor of the abortion clinic organizes that protest on his own land. Mm-hmm. Well, the abortion clinic has no right whatsoever to interfere with what's going on on, on his land. Yeah, so it makes sense. Let me ask. This is probably. You know, a lot of people, when we talk about the libertarians talking about the government being pointless, the most common cliche response is, well, what about our roads? What about the highways? You know, who's going to, who could possibly build the roads except the government? Only the government can do that. How would that be sorted out in a free market? Would So like, say the owner of the establishment would in theory own a portion of the roads adjacent to his property or, or how does that work in practice? I don't think there's an inherent necessity that every owner of a house owns the street right next to it. Right? The mm-hmm. beauty of division of labor is that you can give away responsibilities to others so that mm-hmm. they take care of it and solve your problems. Uh, and, you know, especially with roads management where cohesion uh, is important, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to have a changing road surface every 50 meters and move yep. from cobblestone to pebbles to right, asphalt right, right, right. to ditch, right? All the time. Um, so uh, a, a road that is more consistent in its design and build and quality and material is probably going to be a more useful road and therefore more valuable road. Mm-hmm. And on a free market, therefore, that will be favored, considered resource restraints. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not a, a 
necessity, right? Again, there mm-hmm. could very much be a world where everyone just owns the couple meters of street right around them. But again, there's nobody stopping you from just selling that part to some entrepreneur who sees the value in acquiring a large strip of streets uh, or street parts and then rebuilding it uh, in a more cohesive structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, there's no one solution. Like yeah. this is a very complex problem. I mean, you know, building a flat surface shouldn't be that complex, to be honest. Uh-huh. It's kind of a miracle that government mismanagement leads to <laughs> so many hundreds of thousands of deaths just by the wrongdoings of creating flat surfaces. I'm yeah. so that baffles me, really. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it's an issue. Like, you know, we ha- we have solved way more complex problems. Uh, including across large geographical areas that require a lot of coordination of individual landowners. Yeah, um, that has happened in the past always, and yeah, have, having the restriction that these entrepreneurs who want to provide these large area services that they cannot just put a gun to the people's head and force them to sell, uh, like that's you know essential. Um, yeah, not not just because it would drastically violate the property right of the owners of land who get the gun pulled to their head. Mm-hmm. But of course, also for the end result, uh, because if you do have skin in the game and you do have uh, the potential of risk and a profit incentive, then yeah, you're very much in, uh, incentivized on providing a better service for everyone. So presumably then a specialist in road provision would emerge would then, in the case of our establishment being picketed, would they have rented the adjacent area so picketers could not gather around them? Or would they, do you think the road specialists would just prohibit picketing? Like how I'm just trying to get at what what do you, I mean, I know this is not like one size fits all or one right answer, but how would the market kind of resolve the the public property issue of picketing? Yeah, so you know, at, at at first, if there would be some demonstration uh, uh, and even people crossing off the road, and and the landowner would not interfere, he, he would not voice his his concerns, mm-hmm. then it would just keep going um, mm-hmm. because there's no conflict, right? Mm-hmm. But as soon as the the landowner sees that these people being on his land is less is not beneficial for him, right? Um, for whatever reason or even if he thinks they are beneficial, but he still doesn't want to have them there, um, he can apply any proportional amount of force to get rid of them, Mm. right? And that can be as little as making an announcement saying, hey, please leave. Mm -hmm. And it can be as drastic as, you know, full-out gun shooting and and potential death Mm -hmm. uh, if if these people uh, stand up Mm -hmm. to him and refuse to leave, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, it, it, proportionality again here dictates that there's a mm. lot of nuance here, um, and but again, ultimately, in most cases, you know, the landowner will just say, "Yeah, just be on the land as long as you don't make too much trouble. Just do what right. you do." Um, also, because oftentimes the person of the land, you know, owns a store next to it, so he wants mm. to have people on his property so that they give him his money in exchange for the goods and services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being too restrictive on who can gather is probably not going to be a, a profitable idea for many entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, but again, also not uh, like not no blanket statements here, right? There, yeah. there might be you know highly guarded areas, you know, with huge fences and 
and security personnel and security cameras and and all of this just to prevent you know anyone from walking out onto that property let alone from a demonstration forming um but of course that level of preemptive defense is expensive and costly and you will need to make a profitable decision here obviously mm. Great, great place to stop. I think this has been, I mean, this book is excellent. This is such an enlightening discussion that cuts through so many of the weird nuanced complexities of socioeconomic reality and just focuses on property, right? Because it's, again, this is the basis of civilization. And the way I, I describe or I think about and define property in my own mind is it's just the relationship, right? Between essentially you and yourself and your own time and then how, how what you infuse your time with. So you're, we are each our own most personal property. And then by extension, we make other elements of nature our property by adding value to them in some way. And getting the, the arbitrariness and corruption and compulsion out of that relationship which is really what the libertarian philosophy is centered on just seems so powerful. So uh, I'm excited to go, to go further in this book with you uh, because it's definitely, I already feel it reshaping my worldview. Yeah. It, it really is fascinating. Like he talks about so much and so many complicated topics, you know, about each of these topics, you could write a, a treatise over mm-hmm. and right? uh, thousands of pages um, and it could be incredibly convoluted to think about all of this. But you know what Rothbard really gives you here is, is a hint that how about we look at all of these problems from a starting point of human action and we apply logical reasoning from there and we see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know that this axiom is reasonable because humans do act and we know that logic is reasonable because, well, that's what makes us humans. Mm-hmm. So kind of the conclusion that we make here, um, you know, are, are solid. And, and yes, they might sound scary and counterintuitive, but when you think about it, in those cases, the alternatives are even more scary, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, abortion is always going to be a tricky topic, no matter how you slice it. Mm-hmm. And it's just that this very based approach starting from from individual action and building up to property rights and having that as the guiding principle to answer all of these questions, it's just staggering that I did not find an edge case where this doesn't, where this isn't the most optimal solution out of the situation. And that's staggering because once you get rid of all the other nonsense ideas about those topics and you only stick with property rights, then all of that complexity disappears yeah. And it's really just who took a scarce resource from whom against right. his will. That's yeah. it. That's the only question that you need to ask. Who stole from whom? And whenever nobody stole from anyone, no theft, no violence, nothing to worry about. Whenever there was a victim and whenever someone was forced to do an involuntary act, that's wrong, regardless what the justification was. It turns this incredibly complex topic of, of human interaction and ethics and just brings it down to a reasonable assumption and verifiable logic. And the end result is, is truly staggering. Mm. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Yeah. Well said. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. 
And uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time. Very much, Robert. Have a good one.